Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to greet you here in the house. It's also good to greet our online audience this morning. Um, this is a special honor and privilege for me to preach this message with my son-in-law, Matthew McBirth. Very, very special. Uh, well, any church that is um, concerned about making disciples who change the world by following Jesus and being transformed by Jesus and being on mission with Jesus, we'll need to read and study the book of James. I mean, this little epistle written by the half-brother of our Lord is so very practical. I mean, it is down in the weeds. It is, uh, you know, rough and tough. It kind of calls us out, but so very practical for Christian living. It's not only a practical book, it is a, um, it is a shocking book. Now that's a quote from a former member at College Heights Christian Church, the name Paul Marins. I remember years ago we were meeting still then in the chapel and we were beginning a study through the book of James as a church and Brother Paul got up to give the communion meditation. And his opening line was, the book of James is a shocking book. And I thought, well, it's... It's practical and everything, but shocking? Why shocking? Well, actually, it is pretty shocking because James calls out those early believers with some names. He, he actually calls them fools. Now, that's not non-Christians. That's Christians. Fools. Uh, Jesus said we're not supposed to do that, so I guess James missed that meeting that day. I don't know, but it, fools. He calls us sinners. Normally, we're distinguished as saints. He calls us adulterers. He calls us double-minded. Wow. That's why we've titled this series Reorient. Because when you read this book, you kind of have to reorient your lives. And today, Matthew and I, I guarantee you, in Christian love, are going to do the same thing to you, okay? And it's important, and here's why. Because our theme today is reorienting from prejudice to love. Ay, 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 ay. From prejudice to love. And we'll need the Lord's help with that. So the way we'd like to begin is just sort of have you take a look. We're not social distancing because we're family. Okay. And uh, so, so we're, I'd just like you to look at us for a minute. And, and could you just kind of agree, one of these is not like the other. Okay. <laughs> Like, like, there's a little difference here, right, Matthew? I mean, for example, I'm pretty tall, right? And I'm pretty vertically challenged, okay? I have quite a bit of hair, maybe too much. And I could only wish um, <laughs> to have that kind of hair. I'm pretty young, in my opinion. I mean, I'm in the age of 30 yet. And I'm none of your business. Uh, <laughs> uh, in my opinion, I think my wife's opinion, I have pretty beautiful brown skin. And I have uh, freckles, that's what I have. I, uh, you know, maybe they're age spots, I don't know. But anyway, it's just sad. My ancestors uh, came here from Africa and from Europe. And my ancestors came from England on my mom's side and from Scotland and Ireland on my dad's side. And the way I was taught U.S. history had to do with the pilgrims and Plymouth Rock and religious freedom. Well, my U.S. history, the journey through it, started with abduction, deportation, slavery, and struggling through oppression. And 
when I get stopped on the road, it's usually for speeding or, okay, grading papers. It's not a good thing to do. Uh, you know, don't make a habit of it, but it, it's happened. And I've been stopped sometimes, and sometimes, admittedly, I was going way over the speed limit. There's been other times where I had to question, why am I being stopped right now? Now, we'd like to make a disclaimer right here, okay? Both Matthew and I thank God for first responders and those from our church that are in law enforcement. I mean, they're out there every day putting their lives on the line, protecting us and serving us. We don't want to forget that. And we're grateful that Christian people are involved in that and, in fact, bring to the job their Christian faith and it, for them, becomes a ministry. But reality is my son-in-law in this town has been stopped for things other than speeding and having a taillight out, okay? So you see, there's differences between us. And in our text today, there are some differences. And Matthew's gonna help us with the first part of it. Hope you got your Bibles turned to James chapter two. So yeah, go ahead and turn to James chapter two, starting with verse one. And as you're getting there, can I, can I let you in on a family nickname of mine growing up? Is that cool? Growing up, my family back home in Indiana used to call me Rerun, Rerun. The reason why they called me Rerun is because I love to watch the same movies over and over and over again, okay? Now, I would literally watch a movie, finish it, and then start it again that very next hour. And this is before DVDs, okay? This wasn't like I could just press a button and then... Bam, I'm at the very beginning. No, this was VHS, okay? So this is me walking up, holding the rewind button, which now would probably feel like an eternity. Back there, I didn't care, right? I just held on to it, got to the very beginning, sat back down, and then watched the movie again, right? I love, I just, we just watched Hamilton this past Friday, and on Saturday, I was telling my wife, we gotta watch it again, right? Right now, let's go, this is so amazing, right? I love movies, and here's the cool thing about movies, and you're probably gonna think it's not that cool, Matthew, get a life, right? Here's the thing. Movies all have titles, right? Okay, not that cool. But here's the cool thing about titles. They say in a short and concise way what the movie is about to be illustrating, right? What is this movie about? So, for example, um, have you seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay, The movie is about, get this, a lion, a witch, and a wardrobe, right? <laughs> if it didn't have a lion, a witch, and a wardrobe, you'd be like, what is happening? Why are we, like, like why, why is it called this, right? How about this example? This movie called uh, Friday. Friday is a movie about uh, two black friends who grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, and it's the shenanigans that can take place on a Friday. I love the movie. My wife doesn't. It's okay. But if the movie was set on a Saturday or a Wednesday, we'd be like, why in the world is it called Friday, right? It's called it because that's what it's about, right? How about this last one? Uh, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. I just recently gotten into Star Wars. Like, you're probably like, wow, where have you been at the last, you know, 50 years? But uh, great stuff. The movie, get this, is about battles taking place in galaxies. And in this one, Darth Vader and the Emperor strike back against the rebels. It's called that because that is what it is about, right? Well, in our text today, James chapter two, very first verse, we have something similar, almost a title, if you will. It's almost the, the moral of the story, the, the big thing that, that James wants us to take for, away from this illustration he's about to give. So if you have your Bibles, just read this first verse. 
James says this, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There it is. That's the title. Let me read it again just in case you missed it. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Another way of saying this is if Jesus is the one that holds your fate, you are not allowed to discriminate. Maybe another way of saying this is if you declare Jesus as your Lord, you know, the one that came down from heaven who died on the cross for our sins, the one that rose from the grave on Sunday and ascended above, your natural tendency should not be to lead with prejudice, but to lead with love. What we come to find out is that these first century early church Christians, instead of leading with love and care, they were leading with favoritism and were being unfair. They were, literally, they were literally prejudging people by the clothes that they were wearing or by the certain stereotypes that they were matching and therefore saying either you are important or you're not important. And so James goes on to give an example of how they have done this and how they are doing this, right? And this is the next few verses. Now, let me set this up before, before we start uh, verse two through four. Whenever they gathered together to read this, right, they all couldn't read it individually because not everyone could read back then, right? And they also didn't have Amazon Audible, so they couldn't just like put headphones in or, or, or earbuds and then start listening to it individually. So they all would have gathered together into one room, and then one person would have read this out loud. And the th crazy thing is that you would have had rich and poor together in one room. You would have had male and female young and old, a variety of different occupations and demographics represented in this one room as they read this aloud. And this is what James says, continuing in verse two through four, says this, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, what's so bad about this? It just seems that there's someone who seems to be ushing people to where they're supposed to sit, right? That seems pretty nice. We love that when we go to weddings, right? You walk into a wedding, you're like, I don't know where I'm supposed to sit. What size is the groom's side? What size is the bride's side? I don't know anymore, right? Oh, here's a nice usher who tells you where to sit, right? This seems like a really nice, kind example. Well, not really. Because where you sit matters. Where you sit matters. Now, maybe in our 21st century Western modern times, we don't think where you sit matters, although, you know, it did matter uh, quite a bit not too long ago. And I think to an extent, it still matters today. But we know for sure in the first century, it mattered where you sat. Here, here are two examples that we see in the New Testament. After Jesus is raised from the grave and he ascends into heaven, it says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father on the throne. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is above all things. It means that Jesus is truly the Son of God. It means that he is creator of all things. Why? Because he sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. 
How about this other example we see in the Gospels of Jesus? Jesus is ridiculed. He's despised. He's even questioned. He's shamed because he sits with tax collectors and sinners, a.k.a. he sits with the very people that you're not supposed to associate yourself with. So since we despise them, we're also going to despise you, Jesus. Why? Because you are sitting with them. And this just wasn't a Jewish thing. This is how the world operated back then. Where you sat mattered. The world said, if you are important, we're going to treat you as if you're important. And if you're poor, if you don't have much social status, we would rather you just be invisible to us. We actually don't want to see you. And so when James is giving this illustration, when he's kind of setting this scene, if you will, he is saying the Christians, through their seating arrangements, We're saying, if you are rich, we think you're important. But if you're poor, please just go sit over, just go stand over there. We don't want to even see you. If we have to see you, please just sit at our feet so that when people see us, they see that I'm actually superior to you. They see that I'm over you. What they were doing was they were taking worldly thinking and they are bringing it into the church. And what is the Bible's response to this prejudicial treatment? You cannot identify as a follower of Christ and continue to show prejudice. And so if the first verse acts as a title, if you will, and if the next few verses act almost like a scene, the rest of this passage in James chapter 2 acts like a director's commentary, if you will, kind of explaining why is this not okay. And the way that James does this is just how my parents did it. He asks rhetorical questions and already knows the answer to them. So growing up back in Indiana, I'll be playing a video game in my room, and then I just hear this yelling from the other room, don't even see him, it's my mom and dad, and they say, Matthew? Have you cleaned up your room? Now, here's the thing. They knew, and I knew, the room was not clean, right? The purpose of them was that they were not legitimately asking. They were telling me, stop doing what you're doing and clean up your room. And so James kind of does something similar here in asking some questions, rhetorical questions, all intending for the answer to be yes, And so I want some audience participation here, right? Uh, My dad's going to also help with this. He's going to be leading us. Every time we get to the end of a question here and then from verse 3 to 7, I want us all to respond with a yes. If you're a little bit confused, you can just follow my dad. He's a great guide and he can help us through this. But every time we read a question, we're all going to respond with a yes because that's what these questions are getting at, right? So starting with verse 3. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Yes. Yes. Going to verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Yes. Yes, Yes, because, you know, Jesus actually preached on this. We see this in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, right? Going on, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Yes. Yes. Now let me say something here. To be rich does not mean that you are evil. What James is saying here is, If you are rich, if you have social power and capital, if you have wealth and influence, and you use that unjustly, 
That is when it becomes unchristian. That is when it becomes evil. Last question in verse seven, here we go. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Yes. Yes. Here's what James is saying here. When we show prejudice, when we show favoritism, when we discriminate, we contradict our identity in Christ. We are saying that we want to hold on to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, while at the same time we want to hold on to worldly thinking. As Pastor Sai preached on last week, this acts as a lure. It entices us. Prejudice becomes a bait. And when we take that bait, what we are showing is we identify more with the world than we do with the word. And the two cannot coexist. Church, we're not allowed to discriminate. We're not allowed to show favoritism or have prejudicial thinking. Church, we're not allowed to be indifferent to the problems of our neighbors. As Christ followers, we are called to lead with love. My dad's going to explain more of why that is. I think the movie metaphor is a good way to get our arms around the first seven verses of our text today. So thank you, Matthew. You know, this word reorient really does mean to set right by adjusting to facts and principles. And so we do need to reorient ourselves to the prejudice that's in the passage, which is economic prejudice. I think you see that, economic prejudice. However, running kind of under the radar through the whole epistle of James is this tension between rich and poor, which is why Matthew kind of teased that out a little bit. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, rich and poor. Chapter 2, verse 2, rich and poor. Backing up to verse 27 of chapter 1, rich and poor. 6 and 7 of chapter 2, verse 15 of chapter 2. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Running kind of under the radar throughout this epistle is this tension between rich and poor. And so James has to address this economic prejudice that's right here. We'll be able to set this right if we pay attention with the right kind of, I'm going to use this word, law. Now let me show you what I mean in the rest of the passage. Look at verse 8 with me in your text. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Seems like to me the first seven verses and the dilemma there is addressed by verses 8 through 13. In this, well, three different expressions James uses in the book. Chapter 1, he calls it the perfect law. Chapter 2 and verse 8 here, the royal law. Chapter 2, verse 12 in our passage, the law of liberty. I think they're all the same. I, I think they're just the love of God in us for others in the fullness of the gospel. 
so I'd like to tease out what I call four nuances of prejudice from my little paragraph in verses 8 to 13. Here's the first one. I'm going to reach back to verse 1 to capture this. And I would say it this way. If we live out the royal law and the law of liberty, we won't regard the face of people. Now, Matthew mentioned that prejudice means to prejudge. That's right. But back in verse 1, when you get the title verse, as he mentioned, don't show partiality. Actually, it's from the Greek word which means to lift up the face. In classical Greek literature, it had to do with staring at somebody's face. When you first notice somebody, you usually notice the color of their skin. And so you see their face. And you might be tempted to say, well, I'm trying to not be prejudiced, so I'm just colorblind. Well, nice try. Okay. Yeah, and we'd all like to say that. Reality is, though, this is not a call to not no notice the color of somebody's skin. This is a call in this passage to celebrate the great diversity of God for not making somebody's face color the basis of acceptance or not. That's what's going on in this particular passage. In fact, this gospel is rooted in the Old Testament, the good news from Leviticus. You kidding me? The code of holiness, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Simon Peter had been a believer for quite a while and he still struggled with prejudice. And you get over to Acts 10 and he has this vision three times and finally he says, I now perceive, thank you Peter, it only took you three times, that God shows no lifting up of the face, regarding of the face. If we live out the law of love and the royal law, the law of liberty, we won't regard the face of people. It, it, let me tell you a second thing here. If we live out the royal law and the law of liberty, we will not sin. That's what verse 9 says. Partiality is sin. Now, I don't know if you reckon it with that. It may not rate up there with the 10 famous words of Moses or Deuteronomy 6 or Leviticus 19, love God and love your neighbor, but it actually is sin. So I don't know about you, but anything I can do in a given day that causes me to sin less is a good thing. And it says, if you live out this law, you won't sin with partiality. If we live out the royal law and the law of liberty, we won't dismiss this as an important sin. That's what's behind verses 10 and 11. When he says, hey, listen, if you don't commit this sin, but you commit the other sin, you're guilty of the whole thing, the whole law. We love to play games, don't we? To justify ourselves about not doing this. What James does is he puts partiality up there with the famous 10 words of Moses. So be careful of belittling this. Now, if I could take just a moment and do a sin excursus here, I would tell you that all sin is sin. Are we good? And all sin will keep you from God. Is that okay? But if you think all sins are equal, you're mistaken. There were different punishments in the Old Testament for different kinds of sins. And what it looks like to me that James is doing here is saying, don't be dismissal about partiality or prejudice. It rates up there pretty high. And you commit that, you're guilty of the whole thing. One more thing. If we live out the law of liberty and the royal law, we will shower people with mercy. The passage ends with this great salvation word, mercy. 
Let me just ask you a question. On the day of judgment, do you want fair or do you want mercy? What would you like? Yeah, I think we all want mercy. This is this, it's, a, it's a Greek word, but it goes back to a Hebrew better word. The Hebrew word chesed. And it means God's loving kindness, his covenantal love. Here's the deal. We never do judgment very well because we're not accurate in our judgments very often. We, God does judgment very well. In fact, God's judgment is wrapped up in his mercy. I could illustrate that with the Ark of the Covenant in a thousand ways. I don't have time today. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When I am merciful to other people and shower them with mercy, I'm certainly not going to be committing the sin of partiality. So that's kind of the sermon today. That's the teaching today. But we'd like to take just a minute and make some application if we could here. Okay? Um, because this subject is raised with the theme of partiality, we made a list of ways in our culture that we're seeing that, and we came up with 10. That's a little much. So we reduced it to six, and each of us are going to take three. And I'm going to take the first three. Here's number one. Is anybody in the house surprised? Racial prejudice. You know we'd have to speak to that today with this text. And you might think, wait a minute, now Mark, be honest. This is economic prejudice in the text. You are correct. But those are not unrelated. They just flat aren't. Go south with me in your car for just a minute down to the state of Louisiana. 32.5% people in that state, African-American. But 55% of people in that state, African-American, are dying of COVID. That's disproportionate. Something's out of whack. That's because the economic prejudice of many of the African-American brothers and sisters living in close proximity, not having the access to health care that some of the rest of has, you, you see the problem. It's out of whack. It's not exactly right. Now, I suppose you, you might think, why are you doing this one? Shouldn't he be doing this one? Yeah, probably. Because he's the director of diversity at Ozark Christian College, and he knows more about this than I do, and he'd do a better job with it. But as we talked about it, I said, maybe they need to hear this from the white guy. Maybe they need to hear it from me. And so I want to take this one. Does it seem right to you that 55% of African Americans in Louisiana should lose their lives to COVID when they only represent 32.5% of the population? Something's not quite right there. And if I could just say uh, to the Caucasians in, in the room, when you see Dateline or 2020 or the news and somebody's released from prison for a prison sentence they've been serving for 20 or 30 years and now DNA evidence shows they didn't do it, 99% of the time, what color are they? I'm just saying. And you know, those of us as Christians, we would want to say all lives matter. Yeah, Matthew and I both would have some lack of comfort about the genesis of the philosophy between some of these, you know, uh, uh, organizations. But when people of color hear white people say all lives matter, they feel diminished. It's not exactly right for them. Um, I wore my Bronco socks today. Okay. I've got two pair now since Father's Day. Okay. You have to forgive me, it's in the Bible. But um, yeah, this is my new set of Bronco socks. And the reason I'm wearing them today 
is because I remember an interview with Champ Bailey. He was a great defensive back for the Broncos. I mean, really, really good. And Champ Bailey, in an interview, had tears running down his African-American cheeks. And he said, please, when we tell you, he said this to his white teammates, when we tell you we're afraid, please listen to us. Hmm. Racial prejudice, what do you think? How about this one? Religious prejudice. Religious prejudice. It's pretty easy as Bible-believing, Jesus-honoring, God-loving people to be kind of prejudiced toward others in various groups. Listen, our battle is not with the church down the street. Our battle is against flesh and blood. Every morning when I go down Maiden Lane to the Joplin family, why? Take it by faith. Anyway, when I do this... I look at what used to be a grocery store. Man, is it being made over for the mega, mega, mega church in Springfield named James River. They're planning a campus here in Joplin. Did you know that? And overnight, they could be the largest church in town. And you might be tempted to say, well, those rascals, stay down there in Springfield. Hey, there's lots of people to save in this town. We don't, I don't think the Lord's all that whipped about denominations anyway. And what about even non-Christian religions? Now we would say, but we, they don't believe about the truth. What we, I know, I know. But like Matthew said, that doesn't make them evil. I mean, um, wish you could come to Turkey and meet Tansu, our guide. She's a moderate Muslim and explains to our students the five pillars of Islam as she would have great respect for Christianity. She's different than us, but she, she's not evil. Or how about Mike here in town? I finally retired my 300,000-mile Corolla. I sold it for 400 bucks because it was using more oil than gas. But I bought a 2015 Chevy Cruze used from Mike. I can't pronounce his last name. He's a Muslim. He brought the title in the car out to Ozark Christian College, to my office. He said, you work here? I said, yeah, I work here. I said, I noticed on your desk, do you pray? He says, yes, I pray. You're Muslim, yes. How come? He said, because where I was born. What? He named the country he was born in. He said, that's why I'm Muslim. You're a Christian because you're born in America. Oh, that's how it works, huh? But Mike's a good guy. He doesn't know what we know. Uh, there's that. And then lastly, before Matthew helps with some of the rest of this, language prejudice. You know, language is really is the glue of a culture in many ways. Years ago, when I was uh, invited by Dave and Rose Fish to come to Santiago, Chile, and do a missions conference, um, some of the missionaries came up to me afterwards and they said, oh man, it's so great to hear humor in our native tongue. I wouldn't even try to be funny. But anyway, I said, wow, that's... And um, I, I thought, yeah, I wonder what it's like to hear your own native... Now, fortunate for us, bound by two oceans, we've been having the privilege of this English language thing. But most countries in the world speak more than one. I'm still working on Southwest Missouri English. Are you? Okay. But, you know, uh, when I go out to eat with some of you who speak Spanish, and the waiter or waitress is Hispanic, 
and you speak to them in their native tongue, I watch their eyes light up. There's just something about that, isn't there? And going to the gas station and getting gas and there's Spanish on the gas pumps. Huh. Don't you think that might be a good thing? Matthew, help us with some others. How about when it comes to gender diversity? Now, I want you to hear what I'm saying here. I don't want you to think about what I'm not saying here. Hear what I'm actually saying. I work for an institution that trains men and women who desire to be Christian ministers, to be ministers of the gospel. And I've heard stories and I've seen statistics of our female students who feel like they are inferior to their male peers. Is it okay that students preparing to be workers in the church feel like they're second-class ministers? Is it okay that women who go to Bible colleges or Christian universities have lower self-esteem than men who go to those same Bible colleges and Christian universities? And let me say this, women that go to Bible colleges and Christian universities leave having lower self-esteem than women who go to secular universities. You know, I just feel like you think it would be flip-flopped. And to be honest, I used to be indifferent to these issues. But we can't be indifferent anymore, church. We gotta lead with love. How about when it comes to nationality and culture? I think it is so amazing. If you're able to look around, whenever you walk into College Heights, you actually feel like you're walking into a different territory because you don't only just see the U.S. flag on the wall, but you see dozens of different flags represented. And did you know that when people see that, they actually feel like they belong here? I think it's amazing that we offer Spanish-speaking Bible studies here. I think it's amazing that we offer Espanol translations of our services here. But I wonder if there's more that we can do to be hospitable. Here's a hard question to ask. Is it okay that we favor a certain cultural way of worshiping God every Sunday? Is it okay the songs that we sing, and please, I was getting into it too. I know we get into it, we're being genuine, we're worshiping God, but is it okay that every song we sing is written by a white Christian brother and sister? I say this with love for my dad, and he, we prepared, he knows this, I'm going to say this, but is it okay that almost every preacher we have preach throughout the year all have the same cultural way of preaching and coming to the text that reflects a Caucasian, predominantly white way and genre of preaching? See, I used to be indifferent to it can't be indifferent anymore, church. Let's just lead with love. Lastly, what about age diversity? Age hospitality. I think we have communicated that we do care about being hospitable to people who are in their first day of life to their last day of life. We show it through our ministries, but I wonder if there's more that can be done. Did you know that in uh, some black churches, the elderly women in the church are referred to as mama, as mother? And the reason why 
is because there's a certain reverence and a certain respect that they deserve because they have remained faithful and steadfast and endured all through different trials and tribulations and have remained faithful to Christ. And for that, they're called the moms of the church. Is it okay that the more mature generations here sometimes feel like they are being pushed out? Are told, as James would say, to go stand over there? Is it okay that the younger generations feel as if they are unheard and they are stereotyped as being ungrateful or not hardworking? See, I used to be indifferent to this. But church, let's not be indifferent any longer. Let's lead with love. And here's the amazing thing. When we lead with love and we attain true unity. This is what Jesus says in John 17, right before he's arrested and about to be taken to the cross, he prays this prayer recorded in John 17 saying this. When they, talking about the church, the people who believe, when, when we are completely one, the world will know that, we are, that he is truly the son of God. So we don't do this so that we look cool. We don't do this because it's in right now with the world or that we're being told to do so or so we can check a box. We do this because the gospel says it. We lead with love. We take out favoritism. We take out prejudice from blinding our eyesight and we look at people as if they are children of God. And if they're not yet, we look at them as if they may be our brother and sister in Christ. We lead with love. We lead with hospitality. And when we do that, the world will know that Jesus is truly the Son of God. In a sentence, this is what we came to say today from James 2, 1 to 13. When we reorient from prejudice to love, we show mercy to everyone. Now let me stack the deck and crack the door. Stack the deck and crack the door. Um, I grew up in the North. I'm a Yankee. My high school had about 35, 40% African-American. I really didn't think this was much of an issue for me, whether it's economic prejudice, as in our text, or anything. And I thought I had dealt with this in my soul. But in seminary chapel one day, Dr. Paul Boltman preached a sermon on racial prejudice. He wrecked me. I mean, he totally destroyed me. He'd gotten his doctorate at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, not the greatest section of St. Louis. And um, grown up in Minneapolis, and so he, he preached this sermon. And he laid me bare and laid me out. And I was convicted. And I went up to him in R49 in Restoration Hall at Lincoln Christian Seminary after chapel, and I said, Dr. Boatman, I hated your sermon. Thanks. And I walked out. Uh, I love this young man. I call him son. He's not my son. Charles and Debbie can call him son. He's my son. But I think of him as my son. Because we are bound by marriage now. We are bound by blood. There's a skosh of Papa's blood running through his son. But most important, we are bound by Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus Christ is the one that can move us from the lure of prejudice to the fullness of the gospel of love. Son, pray for us, please. Let's pray together. Lord, Father of glory, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we know that in heaven there is no discrimination or prejudice. There is not injustice or indifference. Your kingdom is one of love and peace and unity and mercy. So, Lord, may our church be the same. May we as a people called by your name, Christ, so do and so act accordingly. This is only possible through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of the Father. May it be so. Amen.